Once again, it's a privilege to be here with you all. I'm going to pray for preaching of God's word and get right into it. Father, thank you for our time here. Thank you for your wonderful and glorious word, Lord, that you have given us, uh, that tells us that uh, we can pray for big things, Lord, and Lord, that you have wonderful and great things planned for us. Um, Father, I pray just for this city. You not only have great things planned for us, Lord, but you have great things planned for Wilmington. You have great things planned for City Church. You have uh, great things planned for your church and all those who put their uh, faith and trust in you. And Father, I pray uh, just for today, Lord, that you would open our, our, our ears and open our hearts to hear your word um, so that those who know you may love you more and those who don't know you may come to know you for the first time. And in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You know, every time I come here, I'm like, man, where did they get this stand at? I have to find this thing. But uh, as I was working on my sermon this week, I came across a really interesting news story. Um, it's a story from back home. I'm from Atlanta originally. And uh, it was one of those things that I tell my students as I go through and talk to them. You know, by the time you're 30, everything you thought wouldn't happen has already happened to you. And by the time you're 60, you're probably paranoid that everything you thought was impossible will probably happen to you too. Um, so I, as I read this story, I said, I thought this would never happen. And probably everybody involved thought it would never happen too. So the story goes like this. A, an armored car security guard leaves the door open on the back of the armored car truck. He drives off, drives off, and the bags of money that he's just collected from all of these businesses starts flying out the back of his armored car on the, on the interstate highway in Atlanta. And as people notice the $100 bills, the $20 bills, the $50 bills flying out the back of their armored car, they've got a decision to make. Am I going to risk my life climbing out of my car on this interstate and go get paid? And is anybody ever going to know that it was me collecting all that money on the side of the road? So as you might suggest, as you might imagine, a lot of people took this risk. And there was a crowd of people on 285, which is one of the busiest highways in Atlanta, running out of their car, collecting money, grabbing uh, garbage bags, grabbing plastic bags, grabbing anything they could find to stuff everything they could into their bags. They were caught on camera. They were caught on cell phone cameras. You can see uh, all of the armored car personnel trying to get the people away from their money, but there was absolutely nothing that they could do. So I want you to ask yourself, did you ever think that would happen? Did you ever think that an armored car would start basically loading money? You ever seen the first Batman movie when the Joker is just throwing money out like crazy and everybody's just running wild trying to collect it? This is what happened in Atlanta. This is what happened. And oftentimes in our life, I'm going to bring it back to the scripture, okay? Even though everybody's like, man, why... Every, everybody, I posted it on my Facebook and said, why couldn't I have been there? <laughs> and then there was a big debate on whether you should actually give the money back or not. Some people said, man, that money is insured. Keep it. Then somebody else said, man, your car is insured, so can somebody just come up and take it? But anyway, as we go, as we keep talking about our text, what I want you to think about is the things in your life you never thought could happen. The things in your life that you need fixed, 
that you never, ever think could be fixed. The, the spiritual growth in your life that you want to happen, but you just say to yourself, Lord, that's never going to happen. I want to present to you today that we have a problem. We have a problem that we see God as being far too small. I came up with a very sophisticated medical term for it. I call it theistic dwarfism. My other term for it is deistic myopia. We see God as just being far, 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 far too small. We don't believe that God can actually change us. And in our text today, Paul is letting us know that not only can God change you, he can change the entire church. He can change the entire world. He can change this entire planet. He can change everyone in it. And it's not a hard thing for God to do that. So what we want to discover today is how does God want us to change? And how will he do it? God is going to change us by giving us a vision of a glorious life that we are supposed to be living in Jesus. And the only way we can live that glorious life is if we embrace a glorious and wonderful and gracious salvation. So how does God want us to change? And how will he do it? The first thing we see in our text is that Christians are rescued for glory. Now, when you say the word glory, it's not for our glory. It's for God's glory. In verses 9 through 11, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. As soon as Paul heard that these people in Colossae had become believers, he said, man, it's time to get praying. And he says that we ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is a big prayer. Paul is not just praying for his people to just, just make it. In Corinthians, he says that some people escape you know, just by, by the, basically, by the flames. They make it in, but they just barely make it in. They've got nothing to show for it. This is not what Paul is praying here for these people in Colossae, for these believers in Colossae. He's praying for them to be triumphant, glorious people who walk after Jesus with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to not do it in their own strength, but to do it in God's strength. Paul is praying for these big things because he believes in a big God. Paul prays for those things which most of us would consider impossible for us spiritually. The first thing Paul prays for is that we would start thinking like Jesus. That we would start thinking like Jesus. He says, and from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. He doesn't, when he says filled, what does filled mean? It doesn't mean a quarter tank. It doesn't mean a half a tank. It doesn't mean 99%. He says that you would be 
filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that everything you need to know, you know it. Everything you need to understand that you know it. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You can't know everything about God. You can't have all the spiritual wisdom. And part of that is true. If you knew everything about God, you would be God. And none of us in here are God or ever will be God. But as you think about this text, he says that you would be filled with all spiritual wisdom. What does that mean? That you would be fully trained in God's word. That you would have a a great grasp of God's word when somebody comes to you and asks you a spiritual question. You're ready, not with your own opinion, not with your own philosophy, not what they told you on the news last night, but you're ready with what God has said in his word. Paul's prayer is for every Christian, every believer, to know God's word as best as they can. The second thing he prays for us is to act like God, to behave like God. He says that, so to walk, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, I know what this sounds like. He says fully pleasing to him. Is anybody in here fully pleasing to God? Well, yes and no, right? If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, God sees you and loves you just as much as he loves Jesus himself. You are fully pleasing to God. You have been justified by God. You have been declared and made righteous by God. And nothing in heaven, hell, or anything you do can change that. So what does he mean? What does he mean? Now, we don't believe in perfectionism, and, but I do understand why somebody who, believe, who reads this text would become a perfectionist. You know, when I was in Atlanta, I went to a church, and right down the street from the church I went to, it was this church called the Perfect Church. That's a great name for a church or an awful name for a church, right? Because everybody in there, you believe in Jesus, you are perfect. But everybody in there we know ain't perfect. But they were serious. They really believed that everybody in that church had achieved complete sanctification, that they were totally sanctified and perfect. And if you heard the pastor preach, that's what he preached on week in and week out. If you don't think that you can be fully sanctified, you ain't a real Christian, because I am. I hadn't sinned since 1979. He can tell you the last date he sinned. He was serious. But you know what was funny? is that like this church had the biggest steeple in that area and like every 10 years that church would get struck by lightning. (laughs) Now I'm not saying that it was done for this reason or that reason, but every 10 years the perfect church was not perfect. And eventually they gave up and they just got rid of the steeple and it was just a little steeple stump on top of the church. We're not perfect. But we can pursue perfection. Peter reminds us that just as he is perfect, we are to be perfect. And we can pursue it. We can pursue holiness and sanctification with all the zeal that the Holy Spirit provides us. We can pursue it. 
But ultimately, we do this in the hope that when we leave this flesh, when we leave this body, that we will be perfect in heaven, in the bosom of Christ. And that when Jesus returns and gives us our new glorified bodies, we will be perfect inside and outside. The next thing he prays for is that everything we do would be fruitful. He says it here. He says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's that, they're increasing, right? There's that pursuit. There's that, that growth, that sanctification, right? But here's the thing about every fruit. You know, we, our perspective on good fruit is often far too limited. As people, as people, we think good fruit is just the fruit that everybody likes. If such and such doesn't like me, it must not be good fruit. If I'm not being made important in the community, it must not be good fruit. If I don't have a placard on a wall or a statue of me, it must not be good fruit. But that's not true according to the scripture. That's not true according to the scripture. We could bear good fruit and have people hate us for it. Not everybody likes kiwi. I don't like kiwi. I like kiwi juice. It's not too bad. But let me tell you, just in case you didn't know, tomatoes is a fruit, and I hate tomatoes. Don't ever put tomatoes on anything I eat. I hate them. My brother hates them. Hopefully my daughter will hate tomatoes. Beyond that, did you know that 10% of, every, of all adults are allergic to strawberries? That's a shame, ain't it? 10% of all adults are allergic to strawberries. Just because somebody does not like your fruit does not mean it's good fruit. If you go into your community and you start speaking out against greed, you start speaking out against racism, you start speaking out against fornication, you start speaking about, you know, gay marriage and abortion, all this other stuff, you know, that our culture is involved in, that people don't like, that people are allergic to. It's good fruit. But there's some people out there that don't like it. Good fruit is not always obvious. Lots of people are allergic to good fruit. You know, what's astonishing about this text is not only the big things that he is praying for us, it's the fact that Paul is praying these big things for us as he's sitting in a Roman prison, literally rotting. Have you ever talked or visited somebody who's in prison? You know, a part of our internship as pastors is that we have to visit, do pastoral prison visitations. And a part of my ministry at DSU, unfortunately, is that I have to do some prison visitations sometime. And I can tell you, every time I visited somebody in prison, they're not praying for me. They're asking me to pray for them. As people in prison got a lot of stuff to pray for. Yo, man, I need some socks and underwear. I need these basic necessities. necessities. Can I get some cigarettes? Can you send me some cigarettes? <laughs> All the little stuff that people pray for in prison, right? 
But Paul is praying for these Colossians. He's praying for them, not in a small way. Typically, an inmate can do nothing for those on the outside, but Paul believes in the power of prayer so fervently that he is convinced that his imprisonment has not subdued his impact. Most of us, if we were in prison, we would say, well, I guess there's nothing I can do for city church. I'm in jail. But Paul is convinced that praying for God's people, that praying for the church is the biggest thing, the most powerful thing he can do. Because for Paul, it's not about his own power. It's not about his own abilities. It's not about his own resources. It's about God's ability to act and to work and to love his own people. Paul can behave this way in prison because he thinks, he acts, he loves, and he fights like Jesus fights, acts loves, and thinks. He's not limited by his own abilities. He's not limited by his own experiences. He's not limited by his own thinking, his own logic, his own philosophies, his own way of doing his life. Following God has made him see what God can do, and he knows that God can do anything. It's not our glory. It's his glory. It's his glory. <clears throat> as long as you seek your own glory, you will be limited by your own abilities. As long as you seek your own glory, big prayers like Paul's, you won't pray them because your perspective will be too small and you will be too selfish. Would you pray for your drug-addicted brother or sister or neighbor to become a believer? Or do you think they're too far gone? Are you ready for God to do little stuff like pay off that student loan debt that you've long said, man, I ain't even paying that no more because I ain't never going to pay it. Are you ready to trust God to talk to your neighbor, that weird neighbor with the mohawk and all the tattoos? Or the neighbor on the other side that, that there's two women li li living there and you can't really tell, you know, what's going on? Are you ready to start inviting them to church? Are you ready to trust God that he can fill this place even when everybody's out on vacation in July. Are you ready to trust God to do that? Because Paul was ready. And he is praying this as an example. You know, as a leader, the biggest thing that you can do to teach your people is to be an example for them. And in this prayer, Paul is being an example of what they should be praying for. The next thing we see, we've seen that Christians are rescued for glory. But the next thing we see is that Christians are rescued by a glorious grace. 
In verses 12 through 13, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. There's a lot of transactions going on there, right? That's a, that's a whole process that he's outlining for us right there. So let's talk about that. Qualify. What does it mean to qualify for something? It means to be made up to the standard of it, right? When you qualify for a job, you don't necessarily have the job yet, but they send you that little letter that says, yeah, you pretty much meet the recommendations. We could hire you. You know, before you are a believer, you don't even qualify for heaven. Your sin has separated you from God. You do not qualify. You do not meet the standard. You can't make it. You don't qualify. If you want to make it to the big race, you know, I'm down in Dover, right? You actually have to qualify for the race. If your car isn't fast enough, if you're riding the Pinto trying to make it to the, the Dover, Dover Downs 500 or whatever it's called, you're not going to qualify. You have to qualify. But what does it say? That God has qualified you. God has qualified you. You didn't have to run the race. You didn't have to go to class. You didn't have to save up for that down payment that qualifies you to buy the house. You didn't have to have the right credit score. But God has qualified you. The next thing he says is that you were delivered. I got Amazon Prime. You know what's so great about Amazon Prime? Is that I don't have to go to the mall anymore. The mall is my front door. And at any given time, you know, I can go online. I can do it right here on my iPad. I go to the mall. And I can say, I want this delivered in one day. It's brought from the Amazon warehouse over in New Jersey or in Middletown right to my doorstep. I don't even have to worry about it. You were delivered. God wrapped you up in that brown box and put you right on his doorstep. Through the power and blood of Jesus, you were delivered. The next thing he says is that <clears throat> you were transferred. Transferred. You know, a lot of times as I'm talking to my students, they say, you know, Pastor D, I can't really sign up for that yet. I got to wait for my mom to transfer some money to my account. You're taking it from one account to another account. That is the gospel. The technical term is substitutionary atonement. That God has transferred all of your sin and all of your horrible, bad things that you've done and placed it in Jesus' account. But not only that, the good news is that not only has he taken your sin, that you have received Christ's righteousness through his death on the cross. That is the gospel. This transfer. But he has transferred you from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. Now, my wife might get mad at me. 
But yesterday, while I was still out of town, she was at her grandmother's, great-grandmother's 98th birthday party. 98 years old. She's still looking pretty good. But what you realize when you look at somebody who's 98 years old and you think about this text is that everything, all of these verbs that Paul has put out here, they're all completely and entirely passive. They're not active. You're not doing anything. It's something that somebody is doing to you. Now, in order to get Grandma Ethel at 98 years old from the nursing home to her parents' house for her birthday, she had to be cleaned. Can't clean herself. You can't put Grandma Ethel in that bathtub. She'll fall. She had to be fed. Grandma Ethel, she can't hold that spoon like she used to. She had to be transferred. They had to take her out of that bed and put her in that, that, that wheelchair. She had to be, she had to be, she had to be moved from, from, she had to be redeemed from the nursing home into the care of someone else. And then once she got there, she had to be placed in that home in a place where she was comfortable and could actually um, process as a person at 98 years old. Nothing she did for that party she could do on her own strength. And in the same way that Grandma Ethel can't do anything on her own, you, as a person who was in the domain of darkness, could not Get out of that darkness on your own. Jesus had to qualify you. Jesus had to deliver you. Jesus had to transfer you. And Jesus had to redeem you. Now, the funny thing about Grandma Ethel is she, she has some pretty advanced dementia. But let me tell you something about Grandma Ethel. Grandma Ethel will put every one of you in here to shame because if you open up the National Baptist Hymn Book, she knows them all by memory. Everyone. I know because I sat down with her for an hour and I just picked random songs in the National Baptist Hymn Book and I was playing them on piano and she was sending them off. Because you know what that tells me? that what was operating in her, even when, when she was totally lucid, was not from her. It was from God. And she can't forget that because it didn't originate from her to begin with. But it's still there, and it's still with her. Now, what else you got to know about Grandma Ethel is that she's still stubborn. Just like my baby. I know where she get it from now. Grandma Ethel has decided she no longer wants solid food. Why? Because she can't feed herself like she wants to. She is still clinging on to that last little strand of autonomy she has. She says, I'm going to feed myself. So what does she do? She gets smoothies every day because she can still sit through a straw. Even though she can't do anything, she still wants to be independent. Now, there's something beautiful about that. 
But as Christians, everyone in here, you're still holding on to that last thread of autonomy that you say, God, I can handle this on my own. I don't need you here. I don't need you here. But what God wants you to do is to give that up. It's to completely and totally rely on him for your salvation and for your well-being. What part of your autonomy are you still holding on to? Have you been rescued? Because if you have not been rescued, if you have not been qualified, transferred, and redeemed by God, none of these promises, none of these prayers in this former text, in this earlier text, apply to you. They don't apply to you yet. But if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, all of those prayers can be applied to you. One more thing, are you actively taking part in rescuing others? Now, you may think that Grandma Ethel can't participate in rescuing others, but what just happened? I used her beautiful life and faith to demonstrate to you in here what it means to be completely dependent on God. God is still using Grandma Ethel at 98 years old with dementia. And he can use you, despite your inability, despite your flaws, despite everything that you're struggling with, despite all of your distractions, he can use you. So what's the last thing we see and we'll end here? The last thing we see is that Christians are not only rescued for glory, that Christians are not only rescued by a glorious grace, but that Christians are rescued to build a wonderful and beautiful kingdom. As I thought about this text, I thought about Solomon in 2 Chronicles, building the temple, and it says that as the temple was blessed and completed, the Holy Spirit came down and the glory of the Lord was upon that place. It's a glorious salvation. And even as wonderful as that temple that Solomon built was, it is absolutely nothing in comparison with the glory of God's church and God's kingdom. God is building a wonderful kingdom. And I'll tell you this example and we'll finish. This past week, as I was at RUF staff training, two years ago, I was the only ordained African-American RUF campus minister in the world. You got that right. In the world. Might as well say in the universe. <laughs> there ain't no RUFs on Mars, okay? Or the moon. None that I know about. I was the only one. But on Wednesday night, I sat down with five other campus ministers. We're starting a new RUF at Howard University in D.C., at Winston-Salem. We've got a ministry at North Carolina Central. We've got a ministry in Senegal. We've got a ministry at Jackson State University. 
If you don't think God is building a wonderful and glorious kingdom, you haven't seen what's happening. And it is happening on a grand and wonderful and glorious scale. And I can promise you, God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As time goes on, there's going to be more and more and more campus ministry happening at HBCs. You can guarantee that. Whose kingdom will you build? If you wish to build your own kingdom, I got bad news for you. You're on your own. You're on your own. The good news is this. If you are willing to join God in building his kingdom here in Wilmington, here in Delaware, here in the Mid-Atlantic, here in the United States of America, here on this continent, in the world, that God will provide you everything you need. You can take that to the bank. God will give you everything you need. You can be assured that God will provide the means for every endeavor he has called City Church to, to be successful. If you will place your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time here. Lord, I thank you for these promises, Lord, for these prayers that are big to us, but are not big to you. Father, I pray that we have been promised to be filled with all spiritual wisdom, to bear fruit, and to go out and be the sweet aroma of Christ in Wilmington and the surrounding cities. Ten years ago, no one would have thought that on a hot July afternoon that we would have even this many people in this building, but here we are. Six years ago, no one would have thought that we would have an historically black campus with an RUF on it. But here we are. And Lord, for all of the cares and concerns in this room, we know that you are faithful to provide, that you are faithful to be with us and to love us just as much as you love your own son, Jesus Christ. And in Christ's name I pray, amen.